Our message today is entitled, The Apparent Irony of Our Two Natures. The Apparent Irony of Our Two Natures. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, and then uh, most of the message today is going to be a verse-by-verse study and explanation of Romans chapter number 7. So let's begin, first of all, with our opening text, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, and I want you to pay close attention to that phrase, in Christ, because the believer, if you've been saved, then according to the word of God, we have been placed in Christ. Now, we know that we ask Christ into our heart. He's in us, but positionally speaking, we are in Christ. So, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Once again, we're going to talk about the apparent irony of our two natures. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the message to our hearts today. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for teaching us what we need to understand. And Lord, I recognize that the truth that we'll be talking about here today it is not the easiest thing to understand, uh, certainly not the easiest thing to teach. Uh, it's very complicated in many ways. Uh, Lord, we are complicated people. Uh, Lord, we have hearts, we have spirits, we have conscience, we have understanding. Uh, Lord, all of these things sometimes cause us confusion. Uh, I know, Lord, uh, uh, and you know better than I do, that there was a time in my life when I doubted my salvation because uh, I didn't understand these two natures fighting back and forth. And so I pray now that you would help us to minister the Word of God, Lord, to teach and preach in a manner to where everyone from young to old can understand and grasp this con- uh, concept. I pray, Father, that you'd use this for your glory and honor. And Lord, if there be someone uh, here today that's listening that is not truly born again. Father, would you touch their heart? Help them to see past the deception of Satan, the deception of self. And Lord, help them to come to a place where they can truly put faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. Help us, bless us, empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The apparent irony of our two natures. Let me first of all explain what an irony is. Uh, the term irony, it's a grammatical term, and it's the expression of meaning in which the language or rhetoric used actually says the opposite. Now, it's similar to a paradox. In fact, it's, it's a lot like sarcasm. Sarcasm is kind of irony. Uh, I tend to, my humor tends to be sarcastic. If, uh, if someone in my family were to be walking across the living room, and uh, trip on the carpet and almost fall, uh, I'd probably say something like, oh, good job. Well, obviously, it wasn't a good job, but the meaning there, the rhetoric, it's saying something that's opposite, that's really communicating uh, something very different. For irony to communicate effectively, the hearer must understand the context or the tone. For someone to take irony or sarcasm literally, then what happens is they're not genuinely understanding what is trying to be communicated. Now, when we talk about the apparent irony of the two natures, I'd like to say this. This is not a disclaimer, but it's very, very relevant. Now, so often people don't listen to the preface when you preface something that you're getting ready to say. Please, I beg of you to please hear this preface because it's very, very important for understanding what we're going to be talking about here today. To truly understand the two natures, then one must have experienced regeneration. Um, you have to know, you have to know what the two natures are. You have to have those two natures struggling within to really truly grasp the teaching. I know the two natures of the believers, there are many lost people that you try to teach and explain to them what the scripture means, and they have a hard time really grasping that because they've never experienced those two natures uh, within them inside of their mind and in their conscience. Now, here's an example of an irony. Here's a picture of a rock, a stone, 
and it says nothing is ever written in stone, and yet it's written in stone. That's an example, a very crude example of an irony. Uh, irony is not always verbal. It can be situational, such as, uh, for an example, the fire station burning down. That's obviously an irony. A police station being robbed or a marriage counselor filing for divorce. These are all ironies. It's like where something just appears to be the opposite of what it is. Uh, these are situational examples of ironies. Now, if you will, go with me to the book of Romans, chapter number 7. Uh, I'm going to try to be as um, as concise as possible and brief as possible, because for us to understand this apparent irony of our two natures, I think it's very vital that we go through the entire chapter of Romans 7. In Romans chapter number 7, the first thing that I want to point out is that in verses 1 through 6, we find that there's a new relationship that is described, a new relationship. Remember, our opening text says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So these two natures that we have, there's a new relationship. Let's see what the Word of God says. Romans 7, verse number 1. The Bible says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. Now that's important because Paul is speaking to brethren, them that know the law. All right? How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Verse number two, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now here's some old-fashioned scriptural truth about marriage and uh, adultery and uh, the ending of marriage, divorce, if you will, that really is uh, an old-fashioned Bible concept that Paul in his day and the people, the brethren to whom he is speaking, they understood exactly the analogy that he was giving. And he's using that of a woman married to an husband that according to the law, she is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But the only way that she is freed from that relationship is if her husband should uh, die. We need to understand that freedom from the law could only come through death. You see, the law is absolute. We, you know, just people think that when it comes to relationships, it's like if I have a marriage and I don't like this one, then I'll just get rid of it and I'll get another one. If I don't like the person I'm married to, I'll just go marry somebody else. That's the concept. It's a way that people think today. But when it comes to the law of God, what we've got to understand, and we'll see this as we get further on in the chapter, is that the law of God is perfect. Now, in a marriage relationship, uh, bottom line is our spouses are not perfect, and neither are their spouses. <laughs> That's something that we def- definitely need to remember. None of us are perfect, and so because of that, we get conflict in relationship. We have conflict in our relationship with the law of God, but it's vital that we understand that the problem is never on the side of the law of God. The law has never done anything to justify us getting rid of it. And therefore, it's imperative that there has to be a death that takes place in order for that relationship to be uh, dissolved. We don't get to pick and choose the laws of God. I've had people ask me, why did God say, thou shalt not do such and such? And sometimes I can see the rational logical reasoning behind it. I'll give you an example. Uh, the law of God says, thou shalt not kill. Uh, well, I understand 
the evil of killing someone. You, you take something, you take the most precious, important thing away from them, and that is their life. I can understand the law of God when it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, you talk about the, just the emotional devastation and hurt and sorrow and grief and broken families over adultery. I can see the natural results as to why God would say, don't do this in the sense that he's trying to protect us from hurting ourselves. Those are all rational, but really when it all boils down, God is God, he's the creator, and he could He could tell us to do and not do whatever he wants to because he is God. I, I don't have to understand everything about what God says in order to obey it. And you know, a lot of people, they're, they're trying to, Brother Glenn in Sunday school talked about new Bible versions, and you know what, we haven't obeyed the old one. Why, why do we need a bunch of new ones when uh, the things that we do understand we ignore? Some people say, well, I don't understand what that scripture says in the old English. Well, what are you doing about what you do understand? Because really, Bible understanding, understanding the commandments of God, it is a relationship with that law. And that relationship, every relationship has to grow. And until we, until we obey what we do understand, there's probably a lot of additional things that we're never going to get to because we haven't got past the things that we do understand. That's kind of a side issue, but I certainly think that it's relative. Now, in verse number four, it says here, once again, wherefore, my brethren, uh, Paul is not just talking to his fellow Jews or fellow Israelites. He's talking specifically to Christians. And he says, Ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. You know, there's so much more that happened on Calvary's cross than just the fact that Jesus took our place. I mean, you talk about the, the song that the men sang, we're justified, we're sanctified, and all these different things that we have in Jesus Christ. Some of them we, uh, we knew it when we got saved, somebody had taught us, uh, but many of those things, when we got born again, we don't, didn't find out what all God did for us until later on as we followed him and began to study the scripture and learn Bible doctrine for ourselves. And the beauty of salvation is that we will spend the rest of our life here on this earth learning more and more about what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross of Calvary and rose again the third day. It certainly is not just a one, two, three, uh, simple kind of thing. There is so much that happened and that God did for us when Jesus Christ died for us. So he says here that we are dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So notice here, we're dead to the law by the body of Christ, but then we're to be married to another. Who are we being married to? For To him who is raised from the dead. So Jesus, who fulfilled the law with his life and then his death on Calvary's cross, we have been freed from the legal aspects of the law, and now we are married to Jesus Christ. We're dead to the law, and by the way, let me remind you that Christ, not only did he die and free us from the bondage of the law, but he also is the lawgiver. I mean, Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. When you read in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, you know who that is? That's Jesus Christ. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then just a few verses later, it says all things were created by Him, and without Him was not anything uh, made that was, that was created that was made. And so Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. He is the one who spoke from Mount Sinai and gave those commandments, who gave the law. So He is the lawgiver. But then he died to free us from the bondage of the law so that we could have a new relationship with him. Now look with me at verse number 5. It says, for when we were in the flesh, now notice that term, 
We talked about at the beginning of the message that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ. It's imperative that we understand that when we get born again, we are no longer in the flesh, but we are in Christ. That's something that takes place invisibly. We don't, we don't see it. We don't even feel it. But God says that that's what he does, and so we have to believe that by faith. When we were in the flesh, watch this, folks, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. We're in the flesh, and because of that, the, 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 our members, what our body is doing, it's bringing forth sin. How many times have I said this? Uh, when we commit a sin, that does not make us a sinner. Uh, we commit a sin because we are sinners. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when sin entered into this world. Now, it's interesting that Paul is talking about this in Romans 7, and just a couple chapters before, in Romans chapter number 5, he, he laid out just completely how that we were in Adam and that when Adam sinned, that death passed upon all men. We die because we are sinners. Sin is what caused death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Interestingly enough, that is the last verse that appears before Romans 7, 1, when Paul starts talking about this conflict of the two natures. Now look with me at Romans 7, verse number 6. It says, But now we are delivered from the law that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now notice it says that being dead, wherein we were held. We've already seen that the law is that when Jesus died on the cross, that the law, the power of the law over us basically dies. Now, it doesn't mean that the law is no longer in existence, but the relationship, I guess we should say, the relationship dies. Uh, we don't necessarily die. We don't die physically, but the, that law, that being dead wherein we were held, that relationship is dead. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and so forth. And so it's important that we understand that we have a new relationship. We are not, watch this, he says that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What the Lord is teaching us as believers is that as saved people, we are not living according to the law. We are not living our inner motive is not to keep these commandments like a list, like a checklist. I, I like checklists because I have a one-track mind, uh, a terrible one-track mind. Uh, Y'all ought to pray for my wife because uh, I, I'm no doubt my one-track mind um, every now and then frustrates her. Uh, every now and then, every every few minutes. But... Anyhow, I, I really, I have a one-track mind, very, very bad one-track mind. And I can't keep track of everything. And so uh, a lot of times I have checklists. I have reminders on my phone and just different things that, that help me manage my just personality deficiency. And so I, I kind of like checklists. But, you know, the Christian life is not about a checklist. Um, there's certainly a time where a checklist can help keep us on track, but we've got to understand that we are serving in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. There is a new relationship. We are no longer under a list of do's and don'ts, but rather there is a marriage relationship, a union, if you will, between us and the lawgiver. We have basically said, Jesus, we love you, and whatever you love and whatever you want, that is the desire. That is what is in our heart. And you know what? 
in any relationship, when two people at a heart level are on the same page, it doesn't mean that there aren't do's and don'ts. It doesn't mean that there isn't expectations communicated, but we're not serving in the oldness of the letter. We're not trying to please the other person because we're afraid that we'll be in trouble or they'll be mad at us. We are trying to please them because we love them and we know that they love us. It is a brand new relationship. I read a story years ago, amazing story, about a, a lady, a Christian lady. I mean, she was a very meek a uh, very uh, servant heart type of uh, lady, and she married a man. And uh, this man was um, was very hard to please, a very difficult human being. And after they got married, he handed her a list, and he said, this is what I expect out of you. And, I mean, he was brutal with that list. If she failed in any area, I mean, that list was spelling out details, how he wanted his eggs cooked, uh, how he wanted his clothes ironed and so forth. I mean, he spelled out every detail. And if she ever failed in any other, in any of these areas, she was going to hear it from him. And so uh, she lived under this type of oppression and bondage. And lo and behold, uh, her husband ended up dying. And um, years later, she married a, another man. And she was, she didn't quite know what to think because he didn't have any list of what she expected. And so she found that he was just so easy to please and she loved him and they just had a great marriage relationship and she was so happy. And one day she was cleaning out some, uh, one of her uh, drawers from the past and she came across the list that her first husband had. And when she first saw that list, she was kind of, you know, you can probably understand how she felt. It probably gripped her heart with fear and uh, maybe a little bit of resentment or bitterness. But she went ahead and pulled out the list and she began to read it. And as she read that list, she began to weep because unknown to her, she discovered that her new husband Everything that her old husband expected of her, she was keeping that list without fail and then some. Why? Because she was serving in the newness of the, the, of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Brothers and sisters, if we could get a hold of that truth and let that truth get a hold of us, that we are serving the Lord not under the oldness of the letter, not according to a list of do's and don'ts, but we are focusing on our love for Jesus Christ and His love for us, and then we know what He expects. We can read His Word, and then it is so easy. We'll find ourselves obeying without any inner struggle obeying and serving for the right reason, and it'll be so easy that we won't even realize um, how much that God is working in our life. So the first thing is we have a new relationship. The second thing in this apparent irony of the, our two natures, I want to talk about a new paradox. A uh, paradox is similar to irony, but a paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement. In Romans 7 and verse number 7, the Bible says here, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. All right, the law became bondage to you and I. But it is still good. In my notes here, I said, but it was still good. And then I got to thinking about that. No, that's not true. It's not past tense. The law, even today, 2,000 years after Calvary, the law is still good. You see, the law revealed my deceptive human heart. And it revealed what I could not naturally see in my fallen condition. And if you're a born-again Christian and you have these two natures within you, then you remember when that law became something that was very condemning and it was revealing your fallen condition. Uh, sometimes in a relationship, conflict 
uh, conflict sometimes reveals what's really in our heart. Uh, I can't tell you how many times that um, that I've had conflict with my spouse, and really when it all boils down, I wasn't upset at her, I was really upset at myself. And I might have been being defensive, and I might I didn't like the way I felt, I felt like a failure, and uh, too often... I have allowed myself to be upset with myself because that relationship, it brought something out, it exposed something within me that I didn't want to be exposed. It exposed my weakness, my frailty, uh, uh, my humanity, and, I, and we don't like that. But the law does that. When, when we put, the law is a straight edge, a straight stick, if you will, and when we come up alongside the law, with our life, it shows us just how crooked that our life is. Now, verse number 8 says, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Paul says that the commandment, the law of God, it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Listen, folks, our sin nature is very, very powerful. Uh, when Paul says that that law, that commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, that word concupiscence is a strong desire. Uh, if you were to think about uh, an example of addiction to pornography, uh, that would be under the category of concupiscence. It's a strong, overpowering desire for something that is wrong or evil. And Paul says that the commandment, it, it brought out this concupiscence. The sin nature, once again, it's very powerful. Have you ever noticed that when we're told not to do something, what does it do? It makes us want to do it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that I've been in a place of business and there's a sign that says, don't touch this. And I look around and you know what I want to do. It's like, I'm going to touch it. <laughs> and, and that is our human nature. Sometimes being told not to do something has just the opposite effect and it makes us want to do it. That's what Paul is explaining about our old nature. Now, let me throw in a truth about God here. I, I know that uh, parents have seen this. Parents have seen that as soon as you tell your child not to do something, uh, they're going to want to do it right away. And so many parents who are, um, uh, I would say, maybe mean well, but misguided, what they do is they say, well, I'm not going to tell them to stop doing that because that'll just make them want to do it. You know, God doesn't handle us that way. God doesn't stop giving us his commandments because he's afraid that it will rot in us all manner of concupiscence. God gives us that straight stick. He gives, gives us his absolute, right, perfect, pure commandments, and he tells us what to do and what not to do anyways. He, he doesn't change his commandment to accommodate our sin nature. But he uses those commandments to expose our sin nature to ourselves so that we can come to Christ and get at least something inside of us straightened out. He doesn't manipulate us. He doesn't always tell us why. He sticks to his commandment because the commandments are pure, perfect, and holy. You can't, there's nothing wrong with the commandments. Now look with me at verse number 9. Paul says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul's speaking here of the awakening of our conscience. Uh, I refer to this personally by the term conviction. Uh, Paul, never, uh, Paul never had a time in his life when he wasn't literally under the law. He grew up under the law of God. So he's not talking about a time in his life when he didn't know anything about the law. He's talking about a time in, in his life when his conscience was awakened to the reality, the accountability of the law. It's one thing to know right from wrong. It's another thing to for it to really sink in at a heart level that I've disobeyed a holy God. Um 
We can naturally have a guilty conscience. I mean, if somebody tells us that something's wrong, I, I, I remember when I first went to work at uh, the church office uh, there in Idaho. And in the church office, there was a paper cutter, a lot like what we have in the church office here. And, you know, I would go in and I'd have to I'd have to cut things. Back then, we didn't have as much computer graphics, and so everything had to be cut and pasted, and sometimes I'd have to cut my notes or what have you. And, you know, I noticed that every time that I'd be using that paper cutter, I, my, my, old, my guts would just be knotted up. And and that probably happened half a dozen times till I finally just stepped back and thought, why do I feel this way every time that I use this paper cutter? And I got to thinking, it's like, oh, I remember. It's because all in grade school, all growing up, you know, in school, they had those paper cutters and teachers were brutal on that. They would tell you, don't touch that paper cutter or you're going to cut your finger off. I mean, they had signs and they were always, they would just drill that into you that that paper cutter is something you don't touch. And so while I'm using it as an adult, I got this, this, it has affected my conscience. And you know, the law is very much that way. We can know right from wrong and it can give us a guilty conscience. You know, even, even my dog will have a guilty conscience when, when it knows something it's not supposed to do. We'll, we'll come home. And uh, come through the door, and and there's been many, many times where we saw our dog just kind of moping around, and you can just see it. It's like, okay, what have you done? And she just hangs. She she knows, but but you know that is an animal who's who's put two and two together and knows that I've done something I know I shouldn't have done, and so there's probably some consequences that are coming my way. Uh, it, it's a fear of being in trouble. And so everyone, regardless of saved or lost, can certainly have a guilty conscience over doing something that they know better than. But Paul's not just talking about that. He's talking about being alive without the law once, but then the commandment came and sin revived and I died. He's not talking about being afraid of being caught. He's afraid of the fact that he's going to have to stand in accountability before the lawgiver. And there is a time in everyone's life, folks, when that that face-to-face encounter with God Almighty, with the lawgiver, takes those things that we know are right and we know are wrong, and all of a sudden we come face-to-face with the fear of God and the awesome accountability before Him. I remember the first time it happened to me. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up around uh, Christianity. Uh, heard the gospel as a five-year-old boy and got saved as a five-year-old boy. Asked Jesus Christ to save me. I was sincere. I wanted Christ as my Savior. But you know, there were a lot of things as a five-year-old boy that you don't remember or you don't necessarily experience. But I remember, I remember vividly about a month after I graduated high school, and I'd been struggling with my conscience. I can't tell you how many times that I had told God I'm never going to do that again. I'd feel guilty. But I had that same attitude. I was looking at God in the oldness of the letter. I knew I was disobeying God, and I knew that I was probably going to get caught and that I was wrong, but I never really got face-to-face with the lawgiver and realized that He's the one that loves me and died for me. It wasn't until about a month after I graduated high school when God, the Holy Spirit, took the law of God, the things that were right and the things that were wrong, and all of a sudden he pointed his invisible finger in my face and he said, look, son, you know better. You know better. And boy, it shook me, folks. It shook me. I can remember my my knees shaking and losing all of the strength in my legs when it's like God just shook me up. It was an encounter that I didn't like it at the time. I didn't want God to show up in the t- at that time. But I look back and I am so thankful. Just like Paul said, I was alive without the law of God once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. 
I realized at that point that I wasn't a sinner just like everybody else. At that point, it didn't matter what everybody else was. It was one-on-one, me and God. And, you know, I believe that there is a time in everyone's life when they're going to have that one-on-one encounter with a holy God. You know, a lot of people, um, they don't recognize that when it happens. And I think a lot of it is because the commandments of God have been pushed so far out of our culture. People, lost people, used to know more about the Ten Commandments than saved people do today. And because of that, that sin, that, that conviction, that revealing what needs to be revealed is so absent from our culture today. Uh, quickly now, let's continue in verse number 10. Paul says, And the commandment which was ordained to life... I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Once again, folks, the problem is not with the law. The problem is me. My sin nature, it discredits. You know You know what a lot of people do? They will look at authority and they will discredit that authority by finding some kind of a fault. Uh, our president today, God help him. I mean, uh, it doesn't matter what he, he could do uh, 99 things just perfect, but one perceived mistake, and boy, that's all that you hear about. And anyone that's in a position of authority, someone's always going to try to find fault. But the thing that frustrates all of us is that we cannot find any fault with the law of God. And so it must not be the law of God. It must be me that has the problem. Now look with me at verse number 13. It says, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. Once again, the good law did not cause my problem. It revealed it. It was like an x-ray or an MRI or a CAT scan. It revealed something that was hidden. You know, I know people that um, will have some aches and pains. I mean, some serious aches and pains. And just know that, hey, I've got something wrong. And they won't go to the doctor. They won't go get tested because they're afraid that they have cancer or some other uh, disease or illness. And they just don't want to know. You know, that that's that's the way so many people are with God today. They won't come to the commandments of God because it's like, I just don't want to know. They think, of well, if I don't know, then everything's going to be okay. That's not the case. If you have cancer, then uh, it may be treatable, it may be curable, but you'll never, ever seek the cure until you know for certain how bad that the disease is. And it's the same way with sin. People in today's culture, you ask them, are, are you a sinner? Most people say, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. But the commandment has not made that sin exceeding sinful. It has not motivated someone to the point that I need to drop everything I'm doing in life and I need to get to the doctor or I need to get to God. I need to get to the preacher. I need to get to the Bible because I've got this sin problem that's killing me. The law of God will reveal that. And that's why the law of God is good and righteous and holy. And that's why... It is so needful. My last point here this morning is that we've seen a new relationship. We've seen a new paradox, but we also see here a new conflict. And I'm going to try to go very briefly through this. In Romans 7, verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. The reality, folks, is that the believer that has two natures is somewhat of a schizophrenic. 
We've got something inside of us that wants to do right and desires the right things, but we've also got something inside of us that wants all of the same filth of the world that it always has, and it's that struggle that goes on in the inside. And that's why Paul says in verse number 18, he says, For I know that in me, now notice he says, that is in my flesh, in parentheses. In my flesh, he says, dwelleth no good thing. Nothing, nada, zilch, zippo. Nothing, Paul says, in my flesh is good. People think that man is basically good, but the Bible teaches that man is basically bad. People think that, well, religion or bad parents or uh, bad teachers or bad circumstances are going to ruin a person. Hey, I got news for you. We come into this world ruined. We come into this world ruined and we need rescued. We need fixed. We need redeemed. And that's the, the fact of the matter. Paul says, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Listen, folks, the life of a believer is not always heavenly bliss. It is a life of conflict. The world can't understand it. They often see us as weak. They often see us as hypocrites. Why? Because they can't understand that we've got this struggle between two natures that always is going on inside of us. They're intrigued by it. They, they, you know, we say what we are and that Jesus is our Savior and that we're following God, and yet if they're around us any length of time, I don't care how good of a testimony that we try to maintain, they are going to find some type of a fault in us. Why? Because we still have that old nature uh, within us. And so Paul says in verse number 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This law that Paul is referring to in this particular verse is not speaking of a legal law. It's talking about a natural law, or I guess we would say a spiritual law, kind of like the law of gravity. You're not going to go to the courthouse and find a law written that's got the law of gravity. It's not necessary. It is a natural law that's basically saying this is the way that it is, and it's the same thing with the law of sin. I don't care who you are, I don't care how uh, godly you are, or how many times you've read the Bible, or what kind of church that you go to, uh, it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. You're going to find that this law of sin is always going to catch up to you. Now, you, you can take uh, me or someone that's much smaller than me, most people probably are, and we could both jump off of a ten-story building. And you know what? It doesn't matter who's heavier, we're both going to fall and hit the ground. And it's the same way with the law of sin. You can take good people, bad people, everything in between, and the law of sin is still going to work in everyone's life. In conclusion, this morning, I draw your attention to verse 24 and verse number 25, where Paul wraps up this lesson on the two natures, and he says, O wretched man that I am. Uh, for someone who thinks that he's talking about how he was before he got saved, he didn't say, O wretched man that I was. He says, O wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You know, that's a rhetorical question, really, because the answer is Jesus Christ. If you're saved, then Christ has saved you, he's delivered us from the body of this death, but the incomplete, the package has not been completed. We are complete in him, but there is still something to be redeemed in the future, and that is our body, our old nature, if you will. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. 
As we wrap things up here this morning, I'd like to make this statement. Being saved does not make me a new creation. You say, wait a minute, I thought our opening text said that it does. No, our opening text said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Uh, We are new creatures in Christ, but not as many of these modern versions say, we are not yet a new creation. That's not going to happen until the rapture when these bodies are changed. We are a new creature, but we are not a new creation. Being in Christ produces a struggle on the inside that did not exist before. In fact, one of the evidences of salvation is not necessarily how many times you wept at the altar. It doesn't necessarily mean how much joy or happiness that you had. One of the major evidences that a person has been born again is recognizing that, hey, things are different on the inside now. Uh, When I sin... My conscience is bothered way more than it ever was before. I've got something inside of me that's always trying to pull me toward what's right. i got something inside of me that's always trying to pull me toward wrong. The believer will recognize that because he experiences that. Listen, folks, my spirit is regenerated. My soul is saved, but my old nature, my flesh, like Paul said, is completely unchanged, at least for now. I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we're going to get a new nature and a new body. And that old nature is dead, practically speaking, or I guess I should say positionally speaking, but one of these days it's going to be practically speaking. Now, if you're unsure of your salvation, I'd like to say this as we close. Regeneration, being born again, is not just having all the right answers. It is experiential, meaning it's something that you're going to have an experience. You're going to know something has happened. And yet it's more than experience. It's faith. It's simple and it's profound. Isn't that an irony? I mean, being born again, salvation is simple, but... I mean, nothing could be more profound than salvation. And speaking of ironies, here's another irony in the Scripture. We are saved by believing, but you can believe the right things and not have faith. In James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. If you think that you're saved just because if the preacher asked you a bunch of questions and you got all the right answers to those questions, you can believe those things, but that doesn't mean that you've ever believed from the heart by faith and put your trust in Jesus Christ. On the flip side of that irony, as I mentioned earlier, salvation is experiential, but you can experience some amazing things and still not know the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And so, yeah, it's experiential. Yes, it's what we believe, but once again, it's simple, but it is very profound. And the best way that I know to kind of wrap up the explanation of that irony is to focus on how Jesus said it. Jesus said it this way in John 3 and verse number 8. He said, the wind bloweth where it listeth. That wind there he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. God gave the commandments thousands of years ago. And you know what? We can teach those commandments to our children at young ages. But there comes a time in everyone's life when the wind of the Holy Spirit blows through. And as Paul said, our conscience comes to life. I was alive without the law of God once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. You're either going to be able to face that guilt You're going to be able to face that conviction 
and turn it toward God or you're going to justify it, make excuses and turn around and run from God. There's a time in everyone's life when that conscience is awakened to the condemnation of the law. We realize that we are undone. We are empty. Something's missing. We are defective. How we respond to the wind will determine how God responds to us. We can't just will ourselves to be saved, but we are not saved contrary to our will. There's another paradox, another irony. We will not receive Christ in our heart until we have seen ourselves under the awful condemnation of the law. When we do that, we quit making excuses, we stop explaining our behavior, and we agree with God's guilty verdict, and we just simply ask Him for mercy. We ask Him for forgiveness. Then and only then do we really truly understand the value of what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary. Too many people today think that if I just will believe in Jesus, believe in the cross, say a magical prayer, then I'm saved. But what all of us need to do is we need to recognize that we are under the condemnation of a perfect law that was given to us by a holy God, an awesome God, a God who is not to be manipulated. He does not bend. He is the king. He is the authority. And we realize that we are guilty. We've broken his law. We're busted, so to speak. Then and only then will we turn to him and say, God, I deserve your judgment upon me. But I see now that Jesus, your son, you took that judgment upon you so that I could be made free from this law of sin. Folks, there's a great irony, an apparent irony of our two natures. But if you're a believer, there are many things that you saw today and that we heard today that you can relate to. But the bottom line, when it's all said and done, where is our deliverance? Our deliverance is in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the word of God. Lord, thank you for this uh, very simple and yet profound truth. I pray, Father, that um, someone's been helped And perhaps, Lord, somebody that's listening today has realized their need um, as sinners in need of Christ. And, Lord, save someone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us today. We look forward to Wednesday. Have a great afternoon.